Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our Tsitskamaha co-host, <laughs> Ronnie Nathan. If you've been listening to the show, you know what that means. And we're very grateful to my friend, co-producer Tristan Drew. And if you like the show, please leave us a review, hopefully five stars with some comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Really does help us in the rankings. And follow us on all those social Twitters, Facebooks and all that stuff. And without further ado, I am very pleased to introduce our friend, new friend and guest, Peter Englert. Peter is the adult ministries director at Browncroft Community Church in upstate New York. I came across Peter by way of his podcast, Why God Why, and have come to learn that he has a very innovative, practical approach to staying connected with his community using social and digital media in addition to staying in touch in person to the degree that we can these days. Something I also came to appreciate is that Peter is a part of a church that, from what it sounds like, and we'll, we'll talk about this, includes members who identify across the political spectrum. In this conversation, just to give everybody a heads up, we're going to learn more about Peter and his background and his unique approach to staying connected. Then we'll dive into a conversation about politics and religion, because that's what we do. I'll present a question about how to navigate conversations in our church communities in such a divisive political climate. Ronnie will be exploring the nature and purpose of prayer, the intersection of faith and politics, and asking about Christian pastors' mission. And finally, we'll give uh, we'll give the floor to Peter if uh, if he's so inspired, and and he'll tell us why God loves the Buffalo Bills and not the New York Jets. <laughs> You're going to have to wait till the end uh, oh, to yeah, get that yeah. one. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Peter, for coming in. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. It's, um, you know, it's great to be connected. Great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Corey. You bet. You bet. Pops, how you doing, man? Actually, I'm pretty good. I mean, uh, we missed you last night at Hanukkah. We did. Yeah, but, that was um, that was disappointing. But We had a virtual Hanukkah celebration. Yeah. Is Savannah test positive? Did you get the results back yet? We didn't get the results back yet. My oh, daughter okay. was exposed uh, to someone who tested positive. So we're all holding our breath and staying, keeping our distance. So, you know, my, my daughter just got done with a quarantine also. So, uh, oh, wow. yeah. So yeah, I, you know, you have a lot of fun with a two and a half year old that can't leave the house. So uh, it's great. <laughs> I wonder, that'd be interesting to compare the two and a half year old to the 19 and a half year old. Uh, and how those experiences would be. But uh, I guess that's maybe for another podcast. <laughs> All I'll say to my friends that we talk about shutdown quarantine, you know, my two and a half year old actually wants to see me. Um, I hear that the older they get, that desire uh, becomes less and less. So they want to see their grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, it depends on the kid. We have three teenage kids. So 
yeah, it really depends on the kid and it depends on the chapter they're going through. So yeah, I'd just be broadly generalizing if I just said, yeah, they want to do this or want to do this, other than just praying that they get their brains back at some point. <laughs> so still waiting. What? I'm still waiting. <laughs> uh, thanks, Pops. Why are you on the podcast again? <laughs> you called me at Siskabaka, so I, you know, have to. You have to live up to your billing. You know what? This conversation is just like my family gathering. So please continue. It's great. Don't worry. And you got an Orthodox Jewish father with a kid who converted to Christianity. If so there's bound to be some fireworks. Humor, right. Um, there's going to be blood on the floor. No, stop. Uh, only, only. I was going to make a bad joke about Brit Mila, but we'll, we'll, we'll say that. Um, okay. So, uh, Peter. Did you always have a sense that you were going into ministry? Um, yeah, I I think I first started um, really feeling like I was going to become a pastor when I was 13. But, um, you know, we were joking before the episode. I grew up Pentecostal and the story goes that, you know, I went to a retreat when I was a kid. We would spend a week away, you know, my family and I and um there was a pastor that went to my mom and said, I think one of your sons is going to become a pastor. And I was like, maybe four or five. And I have a picture with this man, but um, my parents didn't tell me that. And then when I was 13 and I said that, you know, just kind of confirmed that. So yeah. And kind of just from that point on, I, you know, pursued becoming a pastor. And then probably the, one of the best things that happened to me, I didn't become a pastor right out of college. I worked as an admissions counselor at my alma mater, University of Valley Forge. I worked some time in a seminary, and then I also sold cell phones before I got hired at Browncroft Community Church. And I think, you know, as we think about politics, I think sometimes those years were a gift because if pastors aren't working outside the church or don't have some understanding, you can become really insulated. And so I think, you know, ever since that moment, you know, it's been really important for me to spend time with people outside the church to really realize what questions people are asking. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I, I have a question about the early part of that quick story that somebody went to your parents and said, one of your sons is going to be a pastor. Reminds me of a story in um, uh, uh, David's older brother's, wasn't there a prophet that went to Jesse and said something? Uh, who, who was the prophet? Was it Nathan that went to Jesse or was it pre-Nathan? So this is really funny. I was reading yesterday in my daughter's Jesus Storybook Bible, the story it was Samuel. Samuel. And if my brother listens to it, he just graduated with his MBA. So by the way, congratulations. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Uh, to him. Yeah. But, um, you know, my mom basically said, Andy's not going to be, Andy's not going to be a pastor. It's something like Peter. And um, my brother is, is far more intelligent. Um, he's gracious in his own way. I think some of the most loving, like when he gives you feedback, it's tough, but it's because he loves you. But he, I mean, he would tell you, he's definitely not wired to be a pastor. He's, he's an associate director of security at Missouri state. Oh, wow. Um, but you know, just, you know, you can kind of see God working and, um, I know people have lots of different, you know, opinions on prophecy, forth but, you know, it seemed like 
I think God every once in a while kind of places those stories in your life. So yeah, little similarities to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I appreciate what you're saying about getting experience outside the church um, so that you have some some sort of a perspective of the uh, civilians, how the civilians are working. <laughs> I, um, I spent most of my career as high school guidance counselor. And when I was a young man in my 20s, I drove a yellow cab in Manhattan. Mm. And um, I learned more practical material about how to be a good guidance counselor driving that cab every single day than I did in graduate school. Mm. So I can relate to how real life experiences need to inform your work if you work with people in a helping role. Yeah. You know, probably, you know, there's a defining moment when I was selling cell phones. Uh, I was in this hut in BJ's. Um, it's a Verizon wireless. And this family comes to me really, really upset, angry. And all of a sudden they say, my wife, my mother, it was a son and his dad just died. And we need to get the cell phone off the plan. And I, I want to say it was like a week, you know, and just, you could tell that there was a lot of anxiety and, you know, you just don't get prepared for those moments. Oh, and by being at a church. And I think kind of what you're saying about the taxi to be able, the neat thing about the Verizon thing, it was a terrible situation, but I was able to help them in a concrete way. And that taught me more about pastoring in some ways than some classes, because I think sometimes with pastors in the church, when someone, you know, when someone passes away, you know, there's platitudes and there's things that you want to say to people, but what happens is those don't make a difference, but what makes a difference is the meals that came to the house without being asked to do that, the showing up and just watching football together, the praying with each other, the, I don't know what it, and even in that moment, you know, to make sure that this family wasn't getting charged. Um, so I agree with you. There's something about, you know, even you as a guidance counselor, but also as a pastor, being in a situation like that, that kind of gives you a different perspective. In, in my case, um, I spent my entire career as, an, as, an, a guidance, as a teacher, guidance counselor, and eventually assistant principal in a high school, working in minority, working class, uh, poor communities. And driving that cab day in and day out, which is a grunt, boring job, gave me an appreciation for what it's like to have that kind of work mm. where you're facing a lifetime of repetitive grunt work that is a struggle to find meaning and, and, and joy from. Uh, and it helped me empathize and relate to the people that I was serving. Mm. That, that said, Peter, you did a lot of education. You, I think you have two, two master's degrees. Hey, I'd love to have two masters, but I'll take one. I have a master's of arts and theology. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you had an MDiv. Um, no, I have a, a BA in pastoral ministry and okay. then, a, and there's a lot of overlap there, but, um, Hey, I'll take an MDiv you know, if someone <laughs> wants to give it to me. Yeah, there you go. Um, an honorary doctorate from the university of the Nathans. <laughs> there you go. There How's you that? go. <laughs> um, how did you, how did you begin to develop your, 
you, like I said before, you have this unique approach to ministry, utilizing tools like social media, podcasts, your blog. By the way, I've been reading a lot of it. PeterEnglert.com. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. PeterEnglert.com. And um, a lot of other platforms. How did you start to develop that unique way of staying connected? You know, I think, uh, I mean, uh, this shouldn't surprise your listeners or you. I'm 34 years old and, you know, there's things you can control and there's things you can't control. And when I started working admissions at Valley Forge, there was this little platform called Facebook that all of a sudden got big. When I was in college, that's when it came out. And, you know, it just seems that whatever organization that I'm at, I'm thinking about Valley Forge and Browncroft. It, it always seems to be on the cusp of digital ministry or digital connection. So, you know, some people would call me a native. I kind of feel like I'm a millennial that doesn't, I'm not really sure if I'm more Gen Xer or Gen Z, you know, but I think I've always just been in this place where in college when Facebook came and even before that, there was Zanga in MySpace. You know, I just always saw the power of it. I think what changed here at Browncroft in the last five years was I saw what social media can do for your in-person relationships. And it's not just, hey, that's a wonderful daughter or picture of your daughter, Haley, you know, and that's, I think, extremely important. But, you know, I, I'm thinking about just yesterday, um, I started reading, I, I post the books that I'm reading. So I just sent an Instagram story posted woke church by Eric Mason. He's a pastor mm. down in Philadelphia. And I had like two people respond to that, that wanted to know more. And I think as a pastor, if you're going to be in your study and if you're going to study scripture and read books, but you never tell anybody what you read or what you talk about, I don't think you're helpful. And I think as a pastor to be willing to say, this is what I'm reading. This is what I'm listening to. Uh, part of it is prompting conversation and prompting people to think about things. Now, the people that I post about, do I agree with everything that they say? No, I feel like a, as a pastor, I'm a little different. I'm hoping that the people that I serve are able to figure out for themselves in some ways, the things that are, they agree with, disagree with, even the things that are biblical, maybe not biblical, that are orthodoxy. And there are things that I stand up for, but, you know, I think a lot of pastors, they're scared to post, they're scared to engage for saying something wrong. Whereas, you know, it's not like I'm incessantly posting quotes and things like that, or just supporting everybody. But I think part of it is I had a great college experience where the professors would take a passage in the Bible. We'd go through four or five different perspectives on it they would say what their opinion was, but to be able to articulate all the opinions, it's not just helpful for theology, but it's also helpful for politics also, which I'm sure this podcast gets into a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. I think part of the challenge for some pastors or just folks that are engaged in the community is that every tool that we have, even the main ones right now, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, they all seem to have their own ecosystems and languages in a way. And you seem to be at least conversant, if not fluent in all those languages. I was curious too, that some of those platforms, Twitter in particular, uh, and Facebook have, there's, 
there's this natural proclivity for things to go off the rails real quick. Um, I've noticed that you have a pretty strong ballast of what you're focusing on and how to prompt thought, if not conversation in a certain way. Has it ever gone off the rails, especially in this last year or so leading up to the election? You know, honestly, I think more things have gone off the rails off social media. You know, like I said, I serve a church that there's individuals that worked on the local Obama campaign. um, And there's individuals that are very strong supporters of Donald Trump. And I think in some ways that's a pastoral context where I want to be. Most of those conversations have been offline. There's been a few times with anxiety, just things being said. I, I think one of the rules I try to have is the moment that things get toxic or I feel like they're going there is I do take it offline. Mm. Um, there are limitations and more important to me than the views and getting things right is I care about the relationships. And so if, if, you know, and, and this goes even for text messaging, you know, there comes a point that you can finish a phone call or a FaceTime or a zoom and you would save yourself a ton of consternation. So I think part of it is, and we're all trying to navigate this, making sure you're using the platforms for the right conversation and dialogue, but also realizing there are limitations and making sure that you know you you follow that tension. And I don't always get it right. You picked up on something that I want to explore a lot further with you, that your it sounds like your church is has a diverse range of political preferences represented. That seems to be I've I've been a part of Bible studies, churches, Christian organizations, and I've found that there is either a prominence of a political disposition. Usually it's the, you know, right-leaning political disposition that just is the assumed position of everyone in that community. And it's very averse to anyone who might even bring up a question, let alone a position on a particular issue or a politician. Then there are other communities, the church that we go to now, where sometimes an issue is just black and white, where the pastor or someone in the community feels compelled to speak up, whether it's about the moral character of Donald Trump as it relates to biblical virtues or, you know, immigration, the child separation policy, some things that are just black and white that just really need to be spoken of from a scriptural standpoint. But for the most part, it's pretty bland and welcoming to all folks from all different perspectives. But I haven't really come across a church, which sounds like it is yours, where folks do are vocal about their positions, but there really is a range where someone, ha- if they, if someone had a Biden Harris bumper sticker, it, it wouldn't be the only one and like an alien landing from out of sp- outer space on your parking lot. Is that the case in, at Browncroft? I'll tell you a quick story about 2016. Our, our lead pastor was walking the halls the day after Donald Trump got elected. And one person said, God answered our prayers. And another person said, I can't believe that this man's in office. And, you know, to, to have 
and and I had similar experiences. We're we're still, you know, the recording of this podcast, we're still in the pandemic, you know, social distancing. I, I watch the Facebook feeds. I see the people, and that's another thing, you know, I'm not stalking, so to speak, but it is nice knowing, you know, where the church is related to those issues. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, I recently heard uh, to prepare for this podcast, Mark Batterson, the pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C., was just interviewed by uh, Kerry Newhoff. And he said, you know, we're part of a nonpartisan church. And, you know, I, I think that that's so helpful because it's it's not saying you can't have opinions and you can't have viewpoints, but there's the value of the gospel of what Jesus has done to us that, I mean, you read throughout all of scripture, God brings natural enemies together. This morning I was reading in Revelation and it talks about people from every tribe, every nation gathering together to worship Jesus. And that's what binds us. So it sounds really good right now. Um, maybe we could write a book on it, but it's messy. Um, I'll be honest with you. It's very, very messy. And there's, I mean, there's individuals that, there's some individuals that feel like I've sold out to the social justice movement. There's other folks that feel like um, I'm way too conservative. And then most, the vast majority, you know, just they share their appreciation of engaging these topics. And I think that that's, Ron's been a guidance counselor. You've led podcasts. If you want to make everybody happy, you give them ice cream, except if they're <laughs> lactose intolerant. If you, if you, if you want to lead, you're going to have these situations that you just have to manage. As the lone Jew on this panel. That took 24 minutes, dad, 24 minutes. As the Jew, <laughs> go on. Uh, <laughs> Corey, and I, Corey and I have this game that we play. How long will it take before I say as the only Jew? <laughs> uh, I, I have an observation and a question. Sure. Basically, the question is, is my observation accurate? Um, I've been going to synagogue for 73 years. I've been to many, many, many synagogues and been very active in many, many synagogues. Typically, if you have three Jews, you have 10 opinions. <laughs> uh, so, I disagree with that. No, I don't. I kind of <laughs> disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, so this, this is not even an issue in a synagogue. In a synagogue, we expect a great deal of diversity on every issue under the sun, including what's kosher for Passover and what isn't. In the Christian community, my perception as an outsider, even as an outsider with a Christian son, and I've been to church, every church Corey ever belonged to, for religion that preaches love your fellow man as yourself, the Christian community seems to have a political affiliation in most of its churches. I could tell you which is the hard-leaning right-wing church in Santa Clarita. I could tell you which is the even harder-leaning right-wing church in Santa Clarita. You know, and I could tell you which is the liberal church we have to go all the way to Pasadena to find. So I'm wondering, is that an accurate perception or am I a bigot? Uh, you know, and, and, and how do you, you know, and, and rabbis don't have any problem navigating a situation where people in the community 
have such divergent opinions that it comes to the point of um, extreme anger sometimes. Well, let's let's take three kind of historical moments to kind of talk about that, because I think that's a great question. So the first historical moment is the early church. You're someone from Judaism. The early church, you know, grew off of Judaism. Well, the early church were Jews. Yeah, exactly. So so you have this splintering and the whole New Testament is the debates on whether Gentiles should get circumcised or whether they should not eat certain meats. You have a second kind of splintering, which is um, the Reformation. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there was one, the Catholic Holy Church and, you know, the Catholic kind of meaning changes, but you have basically Protestantism moving differently than the Catholic church. And then you have a third instance, which is the starting of America where we have Protestantism, which is protest. The founding of America is protesting and you have at least three strings there that, I mean, again, I'm not here to necessarily argue, but I think sometimes we forget in, in our history as Americans, and we haven't even touched evangelicalism there is this, um, I don't want to say moral compass. I, I think that that's not, I don't, I don't think you sound like a bigot. I think that's a fair shot what you just said, Ron. But I do think there's something about America. There's something about evangelicalism that I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but there is this breaking off and, and protest that comes. And you know, I, I think I'll kind of close this thought with this. The Bible talks about Jesus coming with grace and truth. And uh, Dr. Lindsay, uh, I think it's Michael Lindsay, who's the president of Gordon-Conwell, you know, he said this before a lot. He said, uh, grace precedes truth on purpose. And so I think what happens with us a lot is no matter who we are, we want to fight to be right. But but grace precedes truth on purpose. And I think where Christians have failed, it, it's not always a right or wrong thing. Sometimes it's, are you in a relationship with someone? Do they see that you love them? Are you engaging in a way that Jesus would? And, you know, again, Jesus was gracious with outsiders. He was graciously harsh with people that were religious insiders. So, Again, I, I think part of, you know, what we're seeing is we have a country, whether you're liberal or conservative, that values freedom in different ways, but there is this string of kind of fighting and protesting that I, I think sometimes we forget. Thank you. I don't know. Did I answer your question, Ron? Or Not no? really, but that's okay. <laughs> sort of. Sort of well, kind of. I... I have a hard time because even the churches that I think that lean conservative, like for instance, there's a range of people that lean conservative. And I think what the, the failure of society, especially in America is if, if one of you were to say I voted for Trump, we would make about 20 assumptions without really getting to know. And if you were to say I voted for Biden, we'd make 30 assumptions 
And I think what's happening now is because we have this, and again, I'm not super political. There's other people you could have, but because we have this two party system, inevitably you have to sacrifice some of your personal beliefs to vote for someone. It's not like there's, you know, one party that could connect. And, you know, if you're talking about a Jewish synagogue that trying to, if you have three Jews, there's 10 different opinions. I think that that's true of a lot of humans right now. And I grew up Italian and it's probably about the same ratio. So <laughs> the, the Italians and Jews are very, uh, I think we're first cousins. I, I, so, uh, but I, I noticed that on your blog, there were numerous prayers and posts that had to do with at one point you reminded us that the second greatest commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. You, there were prayers for our enemies. So has that, has that been more of a reminder or has that been an imperative that you've had to reintroduce again and again throughout the season in order to keep a certain level of peace? Yeah, I, so this is pastors say this, you know, you know, the political problems we have are a discipleship issue. Well, what in the world does that mean? Like discipleship is this $10 word that pastors throw around. And, you know, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus made you to be. So that's, I mean, Monday through one more time, Jesus, what? It's the process of becoming who Jesus created you to be. So you think about the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, um, you think about just your personality and we believe in the brokenness of sin, but we are created in the image of God and there's this tension. Well, if, if the political issues are discipleship issues, then if we want to get super, super practical, it starts with, are you praying for your enemies? Are you praying for the people you're disagreeing with? And it's not praying that they change their opinion and become more like you, Actually, what happens in prayer is God begins to change your heart towards other people. And if you're praying like that, then you're probably bound to spend more time with people that you disagree with, or maybe people that you haven't even considered, or maybe you need to have more empathy and understanding. I think about racism, how much of racism recommendations are are you spending time with people that aren't the same race as you? Are you listening? Well, if, if you try to do that on your own, you're not going to, you might be able to grin and bear it. And I, but I think the power of prayer is it puts you in a motivation and in a place to say, God, help me to engage this situation as you would help me to see this person as someone created in your image. And that's why I think it's so important to have these prayers and to give people languages. So uh, I've been really influenced by Walter Brueggemann. He wrote, he wrote a book called Prayers for Privileged People. And I just kind of felt like writing these prayers, it's number one, helpful for me um, as I navigate some of these things, but also hopefully it's helpful to bring up gospel values to the people I serve. I wanna relate a story that sort of underscores some of what you're saying. And it's kind of a bad news, good news thing. Uh, recently, I saw a post from a friend of mine who we did church together. We were in each other's lives. We were at each other's homes. We did ministry together. Everything from filling sandbags to help a friend who just had brain surgery because he was in a flood zone 
to going out to halfway houses to minister to young men to prep prepare them for their ultimate release from from prison um we just we we were doing work together we were doing ministry together we knew each other we you know so uh this fellow posted i'm sure you've seen these posts all all you liberals who are reading this get ready to be offended block me unfriend me uh, because now it's my turn and i'm gonna say i love the lord i love jesus christ i'm gonna say it now go ahead and block me because I don't care what you say. You're trying to take away my rights, blah, blah, blah. I'm, you know, I'm sure you've seen those posts. So I said, uh, I said, Rod, I totally agree. We should be able to say that we love the Lord, you know, and, you know, we're in complete agreement there. But I got to tell you, I got some, I got a lot of liberal friends or progressive friends, however you want to call it. And at best, if they're even reading this, they're just rolling their eyes and they're thinking, what are you talking about? Nobody's trying to take away your right to say Merry Christmas or I love the Lord. And he just responded, we're going to have to agree to disagree. And then I was about to write to him, like, there, there really isn't a dis- disagreement here, Rod. I just think that your perception of whatever. And in the midst of it, it I realized that he blocked me. <laughs> so the post that he started by get ready to block me, I said, I like, we were in agreement. I was just like, I think your perception of liberals is like overly generalized. I don't know. I, I I was trying to engage with him. I was the comment that I was about to write was like, "Hey man, if you want to take this offline, love to buy a beer, love to buy a cup of coffee." Because that's usually when it gets like adversarial or defensive or something. That that's usually my go-to. So that seems like bad news uh, because to me the bad news would be that there is my perception. I but might be wrong. Is that if I don't share a qualifying level of hatred for a broad group of people, broadly generalized as liberals or progressives or whatever, then I automatically disqualify myself from being pure enough or whatever to be a part of that circle, however he might define that circle. I would find that very discouraging. But I think the good news is that I do think that that's the exception to the rule. I don't think that that defines how most people, even within how my dad might define a, uh, a conservative church, I don't think how most people, that's how most people think. In fact, just because that might be the illustration or that might be a loud voice in the room, I still don't think that defines the community. And maybe we have to do the work that I see you doing by creating some space for those who do want to have these conversations, who don't think that anyone who might have voted for a Democrat once is Satan incarnate. We need to make some space for that. And I think there's a lot more there that we're just not hearing because those aren't the loudest voices. I, I, I have an anecdote that relates to, to this, exactly what Corey's talking about, uh, from the other side of the coin. So, uh, the, Let's see, Jack is what, uh, 17 now. So this has to be about eight years ago. My, uh, my grandson was in a passion play at a very conservative Baptist church here in the Valley that Corey belonged to at the time. And um, I guess the church generally knew that I was Jewish and Corey was Christian. And I went to pick Jack up from passion play and I watched the rehearsal and there's a bunch of people congregating and talking, waiting for their kids. And 
somebody said, oh, you're Corey's dad, right? I said, yeah, uh, thank you for recognizing me. Are you a completed Jew? <laughs> I, I said, excuse me, a complete, a, a completed Jew? I have two arms and I picked up my arms, <laughs> I have two legs. I, you know, I feel complete. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, now I knew what they were talking about and I walked away from that with a very bad feeling and a very bad taste in my mouth. Am I a completed Jew? What the hell does that mean? I'm done. Can you, well, well, Ron, I think that's a great point. Can you imagine what it's like to, to say that you're a follower of Jesus and to immediately have someone say to you, well, you voted for Donald Trump. I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I just, I'm having fun. I just, you know. That's happened to me. That's happened to me. I was at a, did I ever, did I share the story, dad? I, I don't know if we recorded this or if it was just in a conversation. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I was, I was at a poker game, uh, a bunch of my friends from the entertainment industry. And um, I don't know how it came up. I think it just came up very casually. Like it was a Saturday night and it was getting late. I'm like, ah, right, guys, I gotta, I gotta wrap it up. I gotta go to church in the morning. And that's all I needed to say. And there was, the, the, there was a, a gal next to me, man, I was under a, an assault of like having to defend. Don, I, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I hate Donald <laughs> Trump. Always have um, since the 1980s when he screwed up the USFL. But, you know, but just by saying church, there was this assumption that not only was I a Trump supporter, but I was then being put on the defense, having to defend Donald Trump and everything that he said, everything. And, and well, like, how did you draw that conclusion just by virtue of the fact that I'm going to church tomorrow morning? So, no, I, th I think I, I completely agree. I, I, I think there are idiots on, on both sides of the equation. I, you know, I mean, you know, stupidity is bipartisan. <laughs> well, it is fair to say that once um, a bunch of folks at church learned that I grew up very observantly Jewish, it was more than once that I get some version of why do all is the question, why do all you Jews dot, 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 you know? <laughs> so, yeah. And, and I, I think that that's kind of pick your favorite liberal mainline denomination. Well, of course you voted for Joe Biden. And, you know, like I said, I pastor people that voted strongly for Donald Trump based on policy. And I know people that voted very strongly on policy voted for Joe Biden. And we've equated what people vote for as most important when there's a deeper, deeper level question why do you believe that? Why is that policy so, you know, important? So let me bring up something mildly controversial. You know, let's talk about gun control for a second. When I talk to someone from the military that's proud of their service, that fought for our rights, and they say, I believe strongly in the Second Amendment, you know, this is what I came to protect. I can look at that a little differently, but then also, you know, when I meet someone that had a family member die from gun violence, talk about uh, gun control, and they can say we need to do more in this area, I can understand why that person feels that way. And I think we've kind of lost that nuance without asking the why behind why some of these issues are so important. One, one of the things that, that I learned professionally I used to, um, I spent four or five years running a crisis response team 
when the schools in New York City were very, high schools were very violent. And one of the skills to help people that had had very violent conflicts in schools, I mean, in some cases, murders, one of the ways of de-escalating the conflict so that the school could function as a school instead of a war zone was to have people from each group paraphrase exactly what the other side said. And then the first group would say, uh, you know, you would say, did I get it right? And take some time for the, you know, each side to be able to verbalize exactly what the other side was thinking and feeling and saying. And what happens after a period of time is if you can verbalize another person's point of view accurately, you begin to empathize with them. You begin to identify with them. You may not agree with them, but you get to see how they got to the place where they're at mm -hmm. in a much different way. That's what George Yancey was saying uh, when, when we talked to him. Oh, you was it, was George on your program? Yeah, George was on our program, yeah. So that's how it first came across why I got, because we were having George on ours and I listened to your podcast. That's how I came across it. But that's his, his prescription, you know, a, he calls it active listening. Active listening, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, but I, well, Ron, I just want to point out, I forgot to say, my wife Robin owns her own um, counseling practice. Oh so one of, one of her greatest gifts that she's given to me um, as I interrupted Cody or Corey is listen, like just like to learn how to listen to someone, you know, to be able to say, Corey, what I think you said was this. And I think people are afraid of getting it wrong, but actually the times when I've listened the best is when I get it wrong and they come back. And even I, I, my mom's main name's Pachano. I grew up Italian. Um, one person would start talking, they'd get interrupted a third person would interrupt a fourth person. And by the time you're in this conversation, you have no idea who's talking. Right. And as you know, as long as you're reading, it's okay. As long as there you go. But <laughs> I think one of the gifts that my wife has taught me too, is there it's okay to have a level of silence and conversation. Number one, it allows you to process, but number two, sometimes that silence actually allows for the actual thought of that person to come out. So mm. I couldn't agree with both of you more. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it sounds like. Uh, one of your, you answered a question preemptively that I was going to ask, what kinds of conversations have you been having about politics uh, within your church community? And then how have you been able to keep the peace? And basically it comes down to creating, creating an environment that, that encourages this type of communication, this type of listening. Is that, uh, is that fair to say? It is. And, you know, my mind immediately goes to, there's probably two or three conversations I wish I could have back. Mm. Um, you know, there's a few individuals and, you know, again, I, I'd lean on Ron for this, but there's certain individuals that just cause me more anxiety and consternation. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I, I had a boss that's an executive. That was the executive pastor of this church. His name was Sam. Sam's from Jersey. And, you know, he's, he's very strong, you know, blunt and direct, but I knew he had my back and I'll never forget. I worked on this project and he said, Peter, this project was crap. You can do better. And I sat, I sat there and I was like, 
yeah, Sam, you're right. Now, if anybody else had said that to me, I would have been, and we, anybody else said that to me, I probably would have been upset and angry, but because it was Sam, I could handle it. And that also comes to the reverse. You know, I get an email from a certain individual and I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh man, what did I do wrong? <laughs> um, you know, and I think that part of it is, and um, I, I'd reference Managing Leadership Anxiety by Steve Cuss. I think it's built on um, family systems. I'm forgetting the individual. You both might know who that is. My wife's, you know, going to say I should have known, but the family <laughs> systems. But how do you lead with a non-anxious presence? How do you have a conversation with a non-anxious presence? And with politics, you know, with racism, even theological debates, how do you listen without taking something personally? And and that is just an art. Yeah. So speaking of theological debates and hopefully <laughs> with uh, without anxiety, Dad, you, you had a couple things you wanted to explore? I, I just, um, we talked about this before the show. I, I want to know if Peter... Um, Peter, what's the purpose of prayer for a Christian? Why pray? What is it you're trying to accomplish through prayer? I mean, the the pat answer is Jesus commands us to do it, but that's not what, you know, again, I, I think there's a why behind that. And I think the why behind it is in prayer, that's where we align our hearts and our attitudes and emotions uh, to God's values, to the good news of the gospel. Um, and so I look at prayer as it's transformative for you, the individual, more than just the situations. I think we've talked about prayer as you pray for something that's outside of you. But as I read scripture from Old Testament to the New Testament, what I see is I see prayer as, you know, this is going to happen. It's going to be terrible. You know, the Psalms are laments and griefs and, you know, it's this space between you and God in prayer that you work some of this stuff out. And so I, I really kind of seen it as alignment, but also um, prompting and perspective to what's going on that I can't see. Does that make sense? Well, it makes sense, but I'm I'm still not clear. In a very practical, concrete way, what is it? What is that you do when you pray? Do you pray the same liturgy every day? How much time every day do you spend in prayer? Uh, are you basically asking for stuff? Are you asking for stuff for other people? What's your process? That's a great question. Thanks for clarifying that. So I journal every day. I journal a prayer. 90% of the time, you know, I'm praying, Lord, create in me a clean heart. And that's from Psalms, you know, renew my spirit, purify my motives. And I'm praying that on a daily basis because I've come to realize how bias, how many blind spots I have. So I'm asking that so that I can be aware of those things. Um, and during the day I'm saying, you know, breath prayers, um, uh, which are just, what is that? Well, I was going to, yeah, I'll get there. But what breath pre is just, if I'm in the middle of a situation, you know, I might just say, Holy spirit, help me. I might just say, you know, Jesus, what am I not seeing here? Um, just short, 
simple, what we call breath prayers. Um, and then, you know, I, you know, when it comes to kind of praying the same prayer, I pray the prayer from numbers. I think it's six twenty four through 26 over my daughter every single day. Um, so I pray, may the Lord bless you and keep you may cause his face to shine upon you. May he be with you and be gracious to you. Um, I pray that prayer over her every single day. So I have a little, I have a little bit of a mix of kind of routine and liturgy, but also just kind of a space to journal, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It makes absolute sense. As I said, before the show started, I spend an average of two hours a day in prayer. And most of it is liturgical prayers. So it's the same, same prayers every single day in three or four different or five different sessions. And I came to this late in life. I've only been doing this for the last 10 or 15 years. So I've got it all memorized now. And sometimes I find myself balancing my checkbook in my head mentally while I'm reciting my prayers. So I, I you know, it challenged me. I had to, I had to ask a couple of rabbis, what, why am I doing this? What's the point of doing this? And the response is, you're connecting with God. And sometimes your mind wanders. So you bring it back and you connect with God. In my own case, one of the last prayers I pray every night, which is probably my favorite prayer, is, is that, is that, God is the creator of all life and the creator of all souls, which means that my soul is a piece of God and comes from God. So what I'm praying, what I'm really doing is connecting with the piece of God that's inside me, mm. which is, for me, it's an anchor because it helps me know that the best part of me comes from God and it's never going to conform with any stereotypical political position, opinion on something in the real world. It's an anchor for me that mm. isn't dependent on a, a approval from other people. It's just dependent on the better part of me mm. that I receive from God. So I wanted to, you know, find out how a Christian relates to God through prayer. Do you, um, do you say the Shema? Three times a day. So I had to pray. You refer to is the blood, the priestly blessing. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to preach on the Shema, uh, and I was at Starbucks and I noticed, uh, an individual that was Jewish in, you know, in Starbucks. And I just, I said to this individual, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm a Christian pastor. I'm preaching on Deuteronomy six, four. Um, can we talk about this? And he was studying to get, he was studying to become a physical therapist. And, you know, what he said to me was, he's like, you know, we have writings, you know, on our, you know, on our wall to remind us to pray. And he's like, I pray this with my kids. And he, he kind of, he kind of explained a similar, you know, kind of story that you have, which is, you know, I think you first get started, you're learning it, things become dry. And he's kind of like, I was resisting, you know, my Judaism. And then somewhere along the way, it became a part of him. And I think all of us as humans, we fight the routine 
And, you know, I, I even listen to you as you talk about that and saying the Shema, our Lord, our God is one, the power of that and the power of what Deuteronomy says is like it, we make spirituality so tough, um, but it's so practical. It's, you know, talk about it as you walk with your children, you know, throughout the day. And yeah, prayer is journaling and it's saying prayers, but it is something you know, and I think Christians have a lot to learn from Judaism in the sense of there is something about having that structure to turn your attention towards God. Because if you're not turning your attention towards God, you know, let's get really practical here. You're probably turning your attention towards social media, CNN, Fox News. And if that's where, I mean, that's where we're talking about getting discipled um, in the sense of you're aligning your heart and values to that without some type of connection towards prayer and connecting with God, that's a recipe for disaster. I'm going to say one more thing and then I'll sure. oh, no, be go quiet, ahead. Corey. The discipline of prayer, the fact that I pray five times a day at specific times means that I structure my day around prayer, around my relationship with God, which carries over into my secular life if I have the discipline to stop what I'm doing in the middle of the afternoon to daven uh, uh, mincha, which is the afternoon prayer, uh, and I have to think about it. If I'm involved in an afternoon activity, I have to consciously think about, I'm gonna have to find time to say mincha before sundown. That translates into a kind of discipline in other activities. You know, I'm gonna be nicer to my wife, even if she says something that pisses me off. You know, I have the discipline to stop and daven mincha. I have the discipline to respond to something in a loving, caring way. Sometimes I fail, but it's something that I think about. Well, I mean, I don't know if either of you have read um, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. He wrote a whole chapter on uh, Rick Warren in, um, why am I forgetting, Saddleback Church. Yeah. And what they talked about was, you know, so he talks about a keystone habit, how one habit can actually help you grow in other areas. So, you know, you pick that keystone habit, whether it's exercising or eating right. And what Rick Warren was talking about was, you know, he talked about reading your Bible and praying and being in small groups. Those were his three habits. And this is someone that's not writing this book from a Christian perspective, but from a business leadership perspective. And we don't examine our lives enough to really kind of ask the question, why are we doing what we're doing? And when you add prayer and Bible reading, it's not about checking the box. It's actually about engaging what you're not seeing. And I think that's kind of, I think that's what both of us are trying to say is, you know, when I get up every morning, it is a struggle not to go on Facebook and Twitter, even just my email. Like I, I treat my email like whack-a-mole. I, I love <laughs> a, a zero inbox, but the, you know, I even think about this morning, you know, my daughter slept in a little bit longer. I had a little bit more time to read. And I mean, just to be really honest with you, the biggest spiritual change in my life in the last two weeks, my friend got an extra copy of the Bible called Bibliotheca, I think. And it's a Bible. It's in four books. It has no verses and no chapters. And 
I'm reading it just as a regular book. And that small shift, I find myself going on social media less. I find myself even watching a little less TV. And there's that space to process and think through things, a lot of it being political and other things. And even just, God, how are you speaking to me in a different way? And you're right. It does take discipline, but it is, I like to look at it. It's creating space for God to work and for you to hear from God. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I have similar some similar practices. I do try to read some Bible every day. I read, I, I write too. And, and writing is sort of my prayer time in that I write in such a way that I try to keep in mind that if the only reader of this is God, how would I write? You know, because mm. I'm not writing for an audience or for an effect, but if nothing else, if nothing else, I can't bullshit God, you know, mm. so I just have to, I have to write with that in mind. And it does a few things. One of which is it slows my thoughts down so that I can find articulation for it. So I can order them a little bit more, um, which is kind of a godly thing. He's, you know, he brings order out of chaos. Sure. <laughs> what? Shake. Okay. Um, so it, there, there is something there. It allows for all of that input and hopefully there's enough good input for you, an individual to be able to process that input properly. Uh, just give some space. Like you said, that's, that's kind of what resonates. Corey, can, can I ask you a quick question? I'm yeah. sorry. This is what happens when you get podcast hosts on. How did, um, or how has growing up you know, in a Jewish home informed or helped you understand Christianity or engage the practice of Christianity? I guess I'm just kind of curious. Well, that's a, it's a big question. And, and question. it's, it's shown up in a lot of ways over the course of time. A um, couple quick things. One, right when I first even considered the possibility of being a Christian, I was thinking as, as you were talking about prayer, I called a fella who was sort of walking me through the process, giving me books to read, making recommendations, who was a Christian. I said, Hal, if I were to consider this thing, you know, becoming a Christian, and he, he had grown up Jewish before he became a Christian too. That's why I was kind of staying plugged into him. Um, I, I said, uh, if I were to do the, do that thing, like what's the prayer, you know, because as my dad said, there's like a prayer for everything, for washing the hands, for eating the bread, for, you know, so there must be a prayer for Baruch HaTad Hashem, I'm a Christian now. Like, what's the prayer? Um, and he just said, no, man, you just talk to God. And I was just, it. I didn't realize that that communication, just free flow of communication was an option. I thought that, you know, I didn't have the words, the rabbis or the priests or the pastors needed to give me the word. He's like, no, it's, personal relationship with Christ. Okay. So that was the first introduction to it. And I still was kind of fumbling around that 3am when I was trying to figure it out. Um, when I woke up and realized, okay, this is the prayer that I'm going to try to pray. But another way that you guys hear that dog, it's always when I start to talk that the, the dog next door decides to anyway, hey, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's authentic. Yeah. You right. Love it. It's real. It's real. Um, as I've developed a much more deeply rooted theology over the years, there are certain scholars that 
recontextualized the New Testament writings for me in Jewish thinking um, and Jewish culture. So, for example, uh, N.T. Wright's big books, Mm -hmm. um, he helped me to reimagine from a historical perspective first century Palestine as a very Jewish place and, you know, a Jewish culture and how how that was the garden from which Christianity was planted and grew. Other, other theologians helped me think more specifically about even really profound stuff like eschatology. You know, wh- where are we going? That basic existential question, what's, you know, what's broken about creation? You know, what's God doing in his creation? And where is this all leading? Uh, so when I hear theologians like um, Van Hooser, who has a great study on, I forget the, what the exact book is called. I think it's The Drama of Doctrine or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he sums it up by saying the Bible, the, the Bible is a story. It's about a story. And that story is still being written. And we're in it, you know, to think of it that way. These are, to me, these are very Jewish concepts um, or the very this worldliness of what God's doing in his creation, not the more Socratic or Platonic version of it, love of like the separation of the spirit going to some pie in the sky, whatever. Um, so thinking, ha- having a more deeply rooted theology that, that, that is a continuation, much more of a continuation of what God was doing with the people of Israel, who I'm a descendant of and still identify as. Um, so that's another way. And then a, a, one last way is <laughs> it's more cultural. Uh, I, I still, I feel very strong convictions about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and his being, you know, the Messiah. But uh, I wouldn't be Jewish if I didn't feel just a little bit guilty about it. <laughs> I'm kind of joking about that. But, you know, there, there was my greatest ambivalence in the first couple of years three, four, five years after being a Christian um, was that I had somehow betrayed my family. Uh, I had to do what I had to do because I believed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought it was the right thing. But yet my, I'm only a couple generations removed from family members dying at the hands of men wearing crosses on their chests of family members um, being willing to go to their death rather than have the cross imposed on them or the, you know, the Christian religion imposed on them. So that's a joke about Jewish guilt, but that's, that was a great ambivalence that I had when I first became a Christian. We haven't talked much about politics, but I think, the important part of this episode is we make things sound so static that we're not changing, that we have to have everything right. And I think, I mean, you both can tell me if I'm wrong. The three of us would probably say we've grown in areas and there's certain things that haven't changed. And that's why, you know, I think even, I love the way that this podcast direction is going because if you don't have something centering you if you're not praying if you're not reading scripture you'll fill that with something else and 
you know, I'll just ask the Dr. Phil question here. Um, you know, how's that working for you? And I, I think, I think we can ask that to, you know, to anybody, you know, whether you follow Jesus or not, you know, without some, and what the, the, what Christianity kind of says is, is that, I mean, we're recording this in the Christmas season, God gave up the Hanukkah season. And Hanukkah, thank you for that reminder. What what day is it? Is it day? Day five. Day five. Today is day five. Tonight starts day six. There you go. The Jewish um, day starts at night. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, you know, we celebrate, you know, the savior of the universe leaving the riches of heaven to walk among us. And C.S. Lewis would even say that that's the greatest miracle. And there's so many things to model with that. But even for us to think about politics, Jesus had a small group of disciples. One wanted to overthrow the government, Simon the Zealot, and one, you know, worked for the Roman government, Matthew, the tax collector. If there's not a sermon for us there, I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You think about each one of that, uh, his inner, his inner circle and that, uh, the 12 and, and, you know, a couple of the other characters that were in that, in that circle as well. That's uh, it's interesting. They all probably had very different points of view uh, socially as we would think of socially and politically and stuff like that. It's an interesting way to look at it. They so, weren't just, sit, they weren't just sitting at his feet listening. I mean, there was fights. I mean, yeah. it's recorded in scripture. So yeah. Uh, Dad, did you want to, um, you had another couple things, but I, we touched on a bunch of them. So you had a question for Peter about the Christian pastor pastor's mission. Yeah, you know, in, in, in Judaism, we're not very concerned about the theological positions and faith of people who are not who are not Jewish. We don't go out evangelizing non-Jews. I go to uh, a Chabad synagogue on both coasts where I live and mission of Chabad and most synagogues is to motivate Jews to be closer to Judaism. We don't go out and try to evangelize, which is much different than a Christian pastor's mission. And I just wanted to put that out there for you and get your reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, Browncroft's mission is inviting people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Um, we just added to it. So if I botch it, I should add the website up. Um, mobilizing people to reach others and to make a difference in the community. So that part, someone's going to find that on the website. Our communications director is probably going to find this. And anyways, <laughs> but it was added. When I think of inviting people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus, I think people immediately jump to conversion and it kind of sounds like even in your question, is it, is it our mission to convert everybody? And, and I, I think where Christians have, have maybe missed the mark on this is there's two major commandments, love God and love the, your neighbor as yourself. And so I, I think about the story that you shared about, am I a full Jew? Um, Completed Jew. Completed you. Um, there you go. I, I'm going to assume the best of that individual, but I'm also going to say that there needed to be some education about neighboring. You know, the, the bottom line is Jesus walked with people from many different walks of life. And 
part of Christianity's problem, especially in America, is there's a lot of good things happening that people are doing motivated out of the gospel. You know, I think about there was an atheist, I think for the New York Times, I'm forgetting his name, that said, I think Christianity is a crock. But when I go to Africa and I see, you know, what the orphanages and, you know, the nonprofits and the missionaries are doing, don't move the Christians out of there. And, you know, I, I even think about the city of Rochester. You know, we've been through a lot this past year with the pandemic. There were some protests. And what I think is missing is there are a ton of churches in this area that are making a difference under the radar because that's what the gospel, the good news of Jesus is motivating them to do. So the mayor's office reached out to us and, you know, we adopted three schools that are struggling and we needed, they said, we need 20 baskets of food per, per school. And so that's 60 baskets. We sent an email out. Those needs were filled for both Thanksgiving and Christmas in about two days. And, you know, again, it's a tension. How do you have conversations about faith with believing in Jesus, but also how do you live in such a way to love other people? And tension might not be the right word. Um, we talk about balance. Balance means things are equal. Um, but harmony is, is there a harmony in what I believe and say and what I practice? And that's where I think as a pastor, my mission is to share the good news about Jesus, but that's not only in word, that's the way I carry myself and live. I'm thinking you're about to say, I didn't answer your question, but I don't know. No, no, Maybe I'm, I did. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something very provocative, but also very um, loving. Jesus was not a Christian. <laughs> you know, Jesus was a Jew, an observant, practicing Jew who never denied his Judaism and became a Christian. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Two, I have two very, very good friends. One is a Baptist pastor, one of my best friends, who honestly believes that I'm going to hell for all eternity because I don't accept Jesus. And when I asked him about that, you know, he said his answer was, I pray for you every day, Ronnie. <laughs> so I, you know, I said, I said, I, you know what, Mike, I can live with that. Then I have another friend, a really good friend, who thinks that even though I don't accept Jesus into my life the way you and Corey do, I'm probably a better Christian than a lot of people who call themselves Christians. <laughs> you know, yeah. so those two perspectives I find fascinating. So, Dad, you can tell Mike that his I'm answer. Tell his last name. What? Let's not give his last name away. Okay, we're not going to give him up. He's going to get. About. Yeah, he's going to get a lot of Facebook messages. Hey, what are you doing talking to those stupid Democrats? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent, for the record. Um, and That's we're having. Tell my friends. My son may be a Christian, but at least he's not a Republican. <laughs> I vote for a lot more Republicans than I do uh, Democrats, for for whatever it's worth. No. So Mike, uh, Mike's answer to your um, to your question sounds a lot like. What the rabbi said when you said, Rabbi, I don't, you know, I don't really, I don't really keep kosher. I'm not really, you know, and the, the rabbi said, you're not keeping kosher yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you could tell, you could tell Mike, he, he's answering like a rabbi. 
And and here's the honest truth. I, I think that's a fair thing to bring up. I think, you know, the, we have a Why God Why podcast episode about that, you know, about hell and, and judgment. And, um, you know, I might send it to you the link in there. But at the end of the day, you know, what Christianity is, and I forget who said it, it's one beggar leading another beggar to bread. And at the heart of the gospel is, you know, we say that, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, the ground is level. And, you know, when I think about politics and when I think about racism, what, what motivates me to have the tough conversations to speak out, um, to care just as much for the unborn baby that um, should never go through abortion as to somebody that feels like prejudice has held them back and things like that. The same motivation is there, which is, you know, I believe that a savior, you know, gave up his life as a way of giving us new life. I think again, it goes back to CS Lewis, the son of God came down to earth to make, um, I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but basically I think the son of God came to make men sons of God. And he says it more eloquently than I do. And so I think you're bringing up so many very complicated and difficult conversations and how we handle that. But the true motivation is I see my brokenness and sin. I go see, you know, we talk, we talk about therapy and counsel. I go see a counselor. You know, I have a friend, Sam, who I was mentioning before, you know, he'll say this. He's like, every day I, I shave and I look in the mirror and I see the sin of pride. And I think where Christianity has failed is that we, there's been a superiority. And at the end of the day, I think part of loving and following Jesus is, you know, I'm not loving you to convert you. I'm loving you because you are an individual created in God's image and God's placed you in my life. And that makes you extremely important to me. And I think we've kind of in these very volatile conversations, we can lose the value in that. So, and I can, you know, and that's why even maybe I'm dancing around it. Some people might say that, but you know, that's why I kind of struggle with every church voted for this person or every church voted for this person. Kind of like what you've said, every, you know, every Jew is like this. When we actually get to know individuals, we, we find out more. And I love what you said too, is that the more I get to know someone, the more I empathize, not that I agree or disagree. And I think that that's kind of the power of podcasts like this. That's the power of going to places that are really uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I have ambivalence about that fine line. There is a difference between doing ministry work for the sake of, because it's, it's the right thing to do or, or to put it in a theological term. I believe that, you know, a lot of the story is God redeeming his creation. So there are things that we do that participate in that redemption plan, whether it's like, you know, my dad talked saying a loving word to my wife when I want to, you know, lash out at her or something more obviously redemptive, feeding the poor and washing the feet of just, there's, there's more obvious ways to do that. And that's the redemption work versus, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to go to the soup kitchen so that we can, you know, kind of maybe get people to say the magic prayer. Um, and I'm making light of it. I'm, you know, not, not to be overly dismissive, but I've gotten kind of allergic to that, that any work that you do is really just kind of a ploy to get in there 
and to, you know, tell the story and maybe, you know, lead, lead, lead a couple people to Christ. And I got one for Jesus today. That, that seems so transactional to me at best. And at worst, it looks like colonialism. You know, now I'm open. I realize in saying that I'm open up, I might be opening up a whole can of worms here, but. Um, well, not to open up too many can of worms, okay. but I think, you know, in our two party system, you just explained where conspiracy theories come from because, you know, a Democrat will say I did this and a Republican opponent will sit there and say, you only did that for political purposes. Mm. Um, and then it's the reverse that when a Republican does something, a Democrat looks with conspiracy theories, says you only did that for a political purpose. And, you know, we're ripe with, I mean, I don't have to go into the storyline. There's a lot of hypocrisy kind of, you know, we did this, you know, a couple of years ago. Now, now it's working for us. And I think that's the general gist of why the American people are struggling with politics, why we struggle with these conversations. Cause even, even the people that we do life with, you know, there's a lot of people that I can finish their sentences. I'm like, I know what you're going to say, <laughs> surprise me, you know? And it's probably been said on this podcast, we've tried to oversimplify some of these issues. And if you're doing things as transaction, as you're talking about, whether it's in the political, political or personal, um, it just cheapens it as opposed to, you know, and at least as someone that's a follower of Jesus, I don't get it right a lot of times, but what I am striving for is that what motivates me in value is because Jesus has been generous and giving to me. So I'm called to be generous and giving to each other. So, well, I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up. You know, I take some some of what we discussed today is really important for us. Uh, one of the things that you just said is when we know maybe one thing about someone or a couple things about someone and we catch ourselves, and I'm including myself in this, we catch ourselves oversimplifying what that person's point of view is um, and then beginning to generalize about a group of people that we might be identifying them with mischaracterizing who they are as an individual or that group that we're wrongly identifying them with, we're, we're in trouble. But going back to something we said earlier, when we are actively listening to someone, getting to know someone on an individual basis and the poetic beauty, complexity, nuance of who they are, um, we're probably in a better zone to do God's work or just to be good neighbors more in a more secular term. So I just want to, um, I just want to express at the end of the podcast, how, um, how much I appreciate having met you, Peter. I've really enjoyed this podcast Good, and it's, it's enriched and nurtured my life. And That's I, good. um, I want to thank you for that. Ron, I, I just love having another New Yorker on the podcast. <laughs> With you know, accent. there there's well, my grandma, my grandma Angler's from Brooklyn and then my grandma Pachano's from Queens. They both passed away. But um, I think one of my favorite things to hear is, nah, you didn't really answer my question. And, uh, <laughs> I just feel at home, you know, because that's what pastors do. And, uh, yeah. you know, it just uh, I, I just, uh, you know, I think Corey's time. I think Corey has some good New York, but he still has a lot of California. He's gracious. <laughs> but 
Get, give me a little run, but no, I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's neat to watch you both go back and forth and really model the importance of this podcast. So I thank you both. I appreciate it. So before we wrap up, I just want to remind our audience about peterenglert.com. That's P-E-T-E-R-E-N-G-L-E-R-T.com, peterenglert.com. And his awesome podcast, Why God Why. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Mm, Merry thanks. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Hey, one one quick thing that I just have to, before we close it, I am a Jets fan. So when you said oh. that it got... I, when you said that I got, so I just, I didn't know if someone said that. So, you know, the other week I was preaching and I said, the Jets are, you know, 0 and 10. I immediately got a text from, you know, one of the young adults and says, Peter, they're 0 and 11. I said, does it really matter? But anyways. And counting. And counting. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.